1: Hi, my name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by the Han Solo to my Chewbacca, uh, Curtis Wister. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm good, Ben. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. We're really excited about our podcast today in our conversations with our clients. We're inevitably sitting down with them and we talk about purpose in retirement. Yeah. And we we talk about purpose in general. And one of the things that we hear a majority of of people we talk to is, I'm not going to retire. Yeah. Is I'm not going to retire. I love what I do. I really enjoy the work. I really enjoy who I'm with. It keeps me active. It keeps me at the top of my game. Yeah, I'm a better person. I'm the happier person because I am doing a profession and, and that's, that's what I like. And you kind of go, there's nothing wrong with that. But <laughs> it seems like there's a natural push that we're all trying to push people to just get done and, uh, you know, to kind of watch uh, daytime soaps. <laughs> so that's something where, uh, when we're designing the podcast series was we, because we've been hearing that, I don't want to even use the word objection of, to retirement is this whole idea of I'm not going to retire. And that's a fulfillment of retirement as well, in terms of purpose. Is hey, this is who I am. This is what brings me the most joy. This is what I like to do. And so at a, at a summer party this year, I was talking to a family relative and, um, and her name is Bonnie, uh, Jean Brooks and Bonnie is the president and CEO of OHI. And uh, we talked about retirement and she goes, I'm not going to retire. It's <laughs> like, so, well, that's the perfect person to bring onto this podcast there today. So with that intro, I want to introduce Bonnie. So Bonnie, thank you for coming on the podcast today.
2: You're welcome.
1: So with, with that kind of intro and that objection, one of, one of the things we always want to dig into is obviously that, that we're going to talk a little bit about purpose and your, your purpose in your life. But to get to that purpose in life, we always want to hear stories. I, I think stories are the, the, the best kind of a relator, in, in terms of we all relate to analogies, we can see ourselves in different situations. And we're not just 2D, we're very 3D. So hearing you and hearing your story is that. So what I'd love to hear is just kind of your upbringing, where are you from, and, and kind of what was your progression all the way to, to the academic world?
2: Well, I was born in Portland, and shortly after I was born, 1941, uh, World War II broke out and before I was a year old, my father had gone into the Army Air Corps, and my mother and I moved from Portland back to live with my grandparents in Stockton Springs, and Mama subsequently signed up to be a Rosie Riveter Mm -hmm. in the South Portland shipyard. So during World War II, my grandparents really raised me, and I often uh, talk about the fact that one of my Uh, mentors in my life has been my grandfather. So this wasn't that long after the Depression, and it was during a time when uh, all kinds of things were scarce. So I grew up with a scarcity mentality and felt like I could make a silk purse out of a sow's ear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and your grandparents raising you in that time period, how old were they?
2: Well, let me see. Grammy and Grampy were probably in their 40s, I would say. I have never stopped to really think about that. But I lived with them for the first four years of my life. And then Daddy came back from the service, and we moved into another house in Stockton Springs. And when I was five years old, uh, we had my brother Terry. And then uh, subsequently, uh, I would think it might have been around when I was nine years old, my parents were having... uh, marital challenges my father drank a lot and we thought that it would be better if we could just kind of get out of the area and daddy could get a job in the area he was skilled in which was really a machine machining machine shop mm-hmm, okay. so we moved to wells maine and daddy worked at the uh, portsmouth shipyard and mama took on odd jobs here and there but then a time came when daddy started working further away in Bridgeport and Hartford and uh, for Pratt and Whitney in mm-hmm. places in in uh, Connecticut. So when I was 11, and Daddy was gone a lot of the time, uh, my sister Kathy was born. And by then, Daddy was gone most of the time, and Mama was working full-time. So I really became a caregiver when I was 11 years old and was taking care of my infant sister. Mm-hmm. And then... Two years later, my brother Bobby was born. Just trying to make sure that these this is right, but I'm I'm pretty sure of the details here. Anyway, Bobby was born, and I ended up being a caregiver. Finally, it became apparent that my parents were not going to make it as a couple, and we were very poor. Mm -hmm. And so my mother talked with my grandfather, and he went up and got dick. Fair brother's truck from his put pig farm and they drove down to Wells and picked up us four kids and mama and we came home to Waldo County. We came home to live in Searsport in a, in a four generation household. My great grandfather had died and my uh, great grandmother was living there. She had a memory loss of some kind, probably Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And so Grammy and Grampy were living. Uh, with her at that point, and that's where my mother and her four children moved, so we had the four generations living there. That happened in June of nineteen fifty nine and then I started Searsport High School in august of of uh, fifty nine and graduated from Searsport High School. A big influence in my life in those years, and from the time I was four years old, was a family in Stockton Springs, Colonel Eugene uh, Johnson, a Bangor boy, and his wife, and their two daughters, one of whom became my best friend. She was three, and I was four when we met. And so I spent a lot of my growing up years uh, living at Tally Ho writing Stable and shoveling horse manure and riding horses and became a a riding instructor and all of that. And Colonel Johnson was a real influence in my life. He was a leader, he was a military uh, person and uh, very well organized. And I believe I got a lot of my leadership skills from uh, Colonel Johnson.
1: I always like to understand ages of where are, are people when they're making this. So here you have your grandparents taking you and your siblings in, and back to Stockton Springs. And and for those that don't know where Stockton Springs is, so it's Searsport and Belfast, right? So right on the, right on the coast there. Yeah. But talk about the sandwich generation, right? Is you have your great grandmother there and your grandparents take caregiving to her as they're caregiving to four kids That's it? right. at that point. So, wow. what You hear that term today of sandwich generation of, but not to that extent, right? Is you don't have that level of generational differences. But I I guess my my question really being is Colonel Johnson, in terms of his relationship, obviously, was he a colonel at that point? What was his age and where was he in the military?
2: Yes, he was retired. I I think that he was in his early 30s when I first met him. And he had just mustered out of the army. He had been in the U.S. cavalry and he had mustered out and he had... uh, purchased two homes in Stockton Springs. One was what we call Tally Ho, and the other one next to it was Shadow Lane. And they would live in Shadow Lane in the winter, and Tally Ho, which was not winterized, in the summer. Mm-hmm. And so I also, one of the things that I didn't mention is that when I was in my sophomore year of high school, my mother remarried. To a man that she had met in Wells. And he, it it was, it's probably true that my younger brother Bobby is his son. Mm -hmm. And my sister Kathy was only three, I think it was, or four when Mama remarried. And so Bob, my, my stepfather really took in Kathy and Bobby uh, 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 under his wing, but did not take in my brother Terry and I. Hmm. I was able to escape some of the negativity that came from him because I had only two years and I left for college. I applied... to Boston University and uh, was accepted. I actually applied to two schools, Springfield. Well, actually, I applied to three now that I think of. I knew, I knew when I was a freshman in high school that I wanted to go to college. And there wasn't anyone from the previous graduating class that had gone to college. And when my mother went in uh, to parent teacher weekend in October of my sophomore year, I guess it was, the high school principals discouraged her uh, from letting me think that I might go to college. And, of course, this is a podcast that will probably be heard by by a lot of people, but I don't care.
3: It's just our friends. The
2: the principal said to my mother, oh, Rulf, discourage her from going to college. She will be knocked up before she even gets out of high school. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, that immediately when Mama came back and told me that 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 meant I was going to college, yes. come hella high water,
1: <laughs> and in first generation at that point, right? So had anybody else in your family gone to uh, no. college before?
2: No, da- Daddy had gone to to some sort of a trade school in okay. Dexter, but but that was it. Mama started nursing school in Portland and dropped out to get married yep. uh, shortly thereafter. So no, no one uh, actually. The, the the stories go that Grampy went to something called Shaw Business School, which I think might have turned into Hussan, but I'm not sure. Okay, because he was the paymaster over at the Sport Docks during what we called Ammunition during World War. So he he was great with math.
1: And so you chose BU.
2: I chose BU.
1: And you said, "All right, I'm going to be a phys ed teacher." And that's and see so you, you got into being of kind of an education academic side of this. So now you're you, you've accomplished your bachelor's degree, which is a mm-hmm. great accomplishment, especially with with a family dynamic that is you know you're hey I, I've accomplished something that nobody in my family has ever accomplished. And then what right what, what's what's next for you after after that? Like that's a especially I mean if you're in Boston and there may might be gravity to come back home with your family, but yeah, the world's your oyster at that point, right? What do you, what do you Well, do?
2: I worked hard to get through college. I didn't have financial support mm-hmm. from home. My grandfather had saved $500, and that sent me off to college that first year, and I got uh, student loans and uh, work-study, did a lot of work-study. And when I was 12 years old, uh, I was asked, actually 13, it was my freshman year, and we were asked to write a philosophy of our life. And, uh, I uncovered that essay that my mother had saved after she died. And my philosophy at that time was the same thing that it is now. That uh, I intended to go to college and I would come back home to Maine and help people less fortunate than me. And so I graduated. By then I was dating Jim Brooks mm-hmm. from Maine. Mm-hmm. And I signed a contract to teach at the end of my sophomore year in college. Uh, They were desperate for qualified physical education teachers. So by the end of my sophomore year, I signed a contract to teach at Winslow High School. Okay. So I taught physical education couple of biology classes and was the coach of every sport you can think of. JV and varsity, swimming, basketball, field hockey, soccer, lacrosse, cheerleading, <laughs> you name it. Anyway, the buses were meeting each other so I could get off one and get on to the other one. And Jim Brooks and I got engaged my, my first year of teaching. And he wanted to continue his education. He hadn't graduated, uh, from Wentworth Institute. Uh, he had missed a calculus class. So he, we decided he'd go out to Northrop Institute of Technology in California and, Halfway through my sophomore year, uh, we got married, actually, November of, of my, so- my when I say sophomore, I mean my second year of teaching at Winslow. Okay. And I moved to California. I got on a Greyhound bus in Stockton Springs, Maine, with my grandmother and my grandfather. And we went from Stockton out to Los Angeles on the, wow. on the bus. Um,
1: oh, my goodness. Yep.
2: And so I had my daughter, Holly. Uh, while I was out there, and uh, within weeks of the time that I had her, I was bored, uh, and I needed to find something useful to do other than just stay home, and speaking about soap operas, I wouldn't know the name of one. (laughs) Uh, So my husband was in favor of that. He was also working full time for Western Airlines, as well as going to Northrop. So I uh, applied uh to uh, the Los Angeles so school department uh, met with the director of physical education for Frances Chapman was her name and i interviewed in august of 1965 which happened to be the month that watts burned and that people were killed mm-hmm. and injured and, uh, she asked me if I would like a challenge. And I said, well, ab- ab- absolutely. Well, she said, we have two physical education jobs open in junior high schools, both in Watts. Uh, I had, uh, two or three classes of adaptive physical education where I was teaching kids with intellectual disabilities okay. and physical disabilities. And so I, that's where I really got the, the inspiration uh, what it means to be able to make a difference in the life of someone with li- limited intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. And I kind of followed that path after that. I, I became the department head. There were eight phys ed teachers. I became the department head. I was also taking classes. I went to, uh, Cal State, Long Beach, Pepperdine College, and UCLA taking courses and got 80 some master's credits but never got a master's degree. I only was taking courses that I felt could help me be a better teacher.
3: Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: So um, I got transferred. I became the department head. The other phys ed teachers wanted me to be the department head because the department had left uh, to go to the high school to be a teacher there. And uh, so I was there. And then the third year, I was... Asked to transfer to the elementary school and take over supervision of a pilot program of elementary physical education teachers, and I had to travel around to different schools. Plus, I had my own classes.
1: And what what drove you back to Maine, right? What was the what was the gravity back to you of because going from California to New Jersey, New Jersey to going, hey, I'm, I'm learning things, I you know, whether it be phys ed teaching and, and then getting into intellectual disabilities and. <laughs> And helping and getting more ability and skill and aptitudes there to go, why, why, why come back to Maine? What was Well, you there? The
2: stir. Unfortunately, I didn't have much of a choice unless I wanted to be divorced.
1: Okay, gotcha.
2: Jim, uh, when he was in Morristown, uh, got a promotion to move to Wichita. And people warned him not to go. That His boss was a guy who had gone through three different people in that position in a six-month period of time. And Jim insisted we were going to go to Wichita, Kansas. So he went out. He started the proceeds of buying a house. As uh, soon as we could sell the house in New Jersey, the girls, by then I'd had Misty. Mm-hmm. And Your second daughter. Yep. Second daughter. And so we headed to uh, Wichita. And we were there. I was very, very upset about it. Very upset because he took a $1,200 increase in pay, and I lost a $12,000 job. So we couldn't find a job. I couldn't find a job in, in Kansas uh, within driving distance. There was a uh, downfall in the uh, aviation industry, and the aviators were, that were being laid off were going into to the schools, public schools and teaching. So mm. two months to the day for the day we closed on our house in Kansas, we closed on it again and sold it because he found out what people Whatever, had been talking him. about, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and he—I he, mean—he he couldn't take it. So we went back to New Jersey again and moved in with our close friends uh, Ray and Dolores And there's a lot to this story, but uh, we ended up living, uh, wanting to buy a piece of land in Beddington Township that had a riding arena. Which was very attractive to me, mm-hmm. and yes, it had a little apartment attached to it, and it had an occupancy permit. But what we didn't understand after we all moved in and the horses were kicking on the side of the of the bedroom, that it was an occupancy permit for horses.
3: Oh, and oh, wow. uh, the
2: code enforcement officer came and said, "You got to get out." So Jim went to eastern Pennsylvania, bought a tent, and we lived in the tent.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. While
2: he was trying to, (laughs) (laughs) while he was trying to, uh, design plans to build a house. And as it was, the code, the codes were so strict there. You, you had to have in, uh, architects and engineers and so forth. Meanwhile, he was traveling to Morristown, just whizzing around, and they hired him back. Well, I had, we had to move out of the tent, because the code enforcement officer came again and said, you can only have you know, a tent pitch for 30 days right. in this township. So by then, Jim said, well, this wasn't, well, I wasn't out of the tent yet quite. And Jim said, I've been offered a job and I can live anywhere in the East Coast that I want to live, including Maine. I had moved so many times in such a short period of time and handled selling houses, buying houses, and all of that. While that you
1: have your two children.
2: While I had the two kids, yeah. oh, and the dog and the cat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. W- which ate the goldfish on the way across the country. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so he said, I'll give you 24 hours to decide where you'd want to live. And by then, I was just plain exhausted. So finally, I got a job in 1974 a private school in Camden, it was a residential treatment center for kids with emotional challenges and intellectual disabilities, and I was the phys ed teacher there. Okay. Drove back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and Jim was flying more and more and more. And it finally came to a point where his and my marriage dissolved. He left in 1977, the same year as, as the private school closed, okay. because because the owner sold it. And I immediately got a job as the executive director of the Belfast Area Children's Center in Waldo and worked there for two years. All the time I was raising the girls, because Jim had gone in 77. Mm -hmm. We didn't actually get divorced until 80. But in 1979, I got a call from a physical education friend of mine named Bonnie Bean, who had been a phys ed teacher at Pineland, Uh the one state institution for people with intellectual disabilities. And she had subsequently gone to work for the state and was a case manager Uh in Bangor. And she called me. We were in the middle state uh, w- was the defendant in a federal class action suit, a consent decree. And there was a demand for improvement of conditions at Pineland as well as building up of community services. There were literally no community services for people, no group homes and things like that. So Bonnie called me one day in 1979, in May of 79, and she said, Bonnie, I need a favor, and you owe me- you owe me a favor. Okay. I'm on the interview team. Uh, we're trying. Uh, we've got a new nonprofit that we've started. For, uh, seven state employees and one community member started a nonprofit because of the federal court action. Yep. Uh, and uh, she said, "We can't find the right person. We think could pull off this 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 job of becoming the executive director because the the this agency was supposed to support people who had never been deinstitutionalized since they had entered the institution at age five or six. They all had the dual diagnosis of intellectual disability and mental illness." were violent, self-injurious, and all of that. And she said, we've come down to the point where all the people on the interview team have been asked, could they, if they, if they could think of one person who could do this job, then to ask them to come in for an interview. So she asked me to come in. I said, I can't. I, I like my job. She said, you owe me a favor. So I drove in for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> and before well, I got back to the daycare center, they called. Well, I got, I, I got back there late because I got stopped for speeding on the way in Monroe. <laughs> but uh, so that began my my career. The one that I've had now for 40 years.
1: And that name of that organization? Was
2: Opportunity Housing.
1: Okay.
2: We were to have had two six-person group home but, but we weren't six-person group home for very long. Um, you know, right there in '79, we opened up two. Uh, group homes, one in Orrington, one in Bangor. And uh, on December 21st of 1979, uh, I was asked to uh, get a violent kid out of the Elizabeth Levinson Center, which was a state-run pediatric facility because uh, this boy was pulling out the tubes and tipping over the wheelchairs of the other children. Mm-hmm. So we started children's services in 79. And, you know, here we are, 40 years later, and uh, we're serving over 600 people a year in a whole array of services. We have the intellectual disability side of the family, and we have the mental health side of the family, and then we have three apartment buildings for people who have serious and persistent mental illness, and we're homeless, and we got them off of the streets and into those apartment buildings. And we have a food pantry and brewer. And we have a mental health clubhouse in Ellsworth, and case management in six counties.
1: So, I think there they're, they're deli- they're kind of needs a little bit more explanation. Forty years of really great career success, right? <laughs> you know, here here's where you start with day one. You know, with a six person group home facility, and how many staff members did you have at that point?
2: Well, our first office was at what we then called BMHI or Dorothea Dix because yep. these people mm-hmm. were so difficult that they'd been transferred from Pineland to Dorothea Dix. So my first office was up there and I hired uh, six staff members. And when we moved out of there, we got to know the people. That was my idea. We don't want to get a group home. And and move six people into a group home who have never been out of an institution and have all these significant reputations. We get to know them on their grounds. They get to trust us. Trust is a big part of the issue. They've been traumatized and beaten and sexually abused and everything else in the institutions. So on October 17th, we opened up the first group home, and then we hired a lot more staff. I mean, you had a lot of one-to-one support needs. And then we opened up the second home on December 21st. No, 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 December 11th, 1979. And that that was, uh, those people all had autism, Mm -hmm. intellectual disability, self-injurious behaviors. Three of them we were taking uh, for lead tests every week because they were life-threatened with lead in their system from picking the walls of BMHI and Mm -hmm. eating The cinder blocks,
1: but at that point too, right? Is these medical diagnoses weren't what they are today, right? Is uh, autism was kind of very little known about autism at that point, and you know, so very broad based in terms of these diagnoses, correct? And in terms of the the treatment and how how people were treated individually, and and so you've had an organization that's been almost at the forefront of a lot of these medical diagnoses and how to how to help, right? How to assist them, how to how to Maybe in some cases, if they're able to, uh, reintegrate them into the community and, and have them, have them participate in lots of different levels. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you talk a little bit about this organization? And obviously you saw a need right from Pineland immediately, but how has that need changed? All right. So over 40 years where I think you, you kind of was a reaction maybe immediately to that, that class action suit, right? Is mm-hmm. that, you, you said well here's here's an agency and i'm I'm heading up this agency, but it became something bigger. Can you talk about you know just just that that evolution over forty years?
2: Well, I think one of the things that I've missed saying is that in my interview a a picture was painted of this this they're taking bets that the people who are taken out of the institutions are going to return mm-hmm. the state employees are taking bets, the advocates are taking bets definitely the defendants were taking bets and Uh, how do you think you could pull this off? And I described, beat them on their grounds. And I said, everything is possible. And I knew when I was uh, interviewing for this job that I treated everybody as an individual. I did not know one damn thing. Uh, I'm not a clinician. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to be one. I think you get into trouble if you try to be a clinician. I think that if you accept people for who they are and develop trust with them, and there was nothing like this going on anywhere in the country. I could not turn to any community provider in the United States and find anybody who outside of an institution was providing supports for people with do dual diagnoses. So yes, the times have changed. The big success at that point was just helping people to get out of these horrifying situations they were in, in the institution. But right from the beginning, we were always helping people to identify what their dreams and their aspirations were and, and always Believed that the human potential is limitless mm-hmm. and that there's so much within all of us that we, we just have to have people to help pull it out of us. That's right. And so treating people as individuals helped the people we supported at that time and today to go further. And of course, the times have changed. Pineland closed in 1996. There is no more Pineland. And mm. Dorothea Dix has downsized. I think it might have between 50 and 60 licensed so-called beds up there yep. at, at this time. Uh, so you do not have people coming to you out of institutions now. You have kids coming to you, uh, or adults coming to you from living at home, uh, and from having, uh, much more progressive uh, education in the public schools Mm -hmm. than they had at that time. So the expectations of parents uh, have changed uh, over these 40 years. Unfortunately, we, we, we had one class action suit follow the Pineland class action suit. And those consent decrees helped to bring resources into the lives of these people so that we could give them the types of resources they needed to become more independent, more self-determined. But now we have a whole new generation of parents who want something different for their kids. They want, they don't want their kids in group homes anymore. They Mm -hmm. want their kids in, in uh, independent living. They want them to maximize the use of technology to assist them with their intellectual and behavioral needs. The conundrum here is that the smaller the environment, the more expensive it is. Sure. Yeah. And right now it's we've a got about right? 2,000 people on the waiting list for services just in intellectual disabilities wow. to say nothing about wow. people with mental illness. And I have to say that when the community consent decree came to an end in 2010, mm-hmm. and I was chair of what was called the Consumer Advisory Board, which was the oversight body of the, for the state, There was not one person on a waiting list in 2010. And now there are, in nine years, is that nine? 2010, Mm -hmm. nine years, there are 2,000 people. And a part of that has to do with the administration that we've just finished with.
1: Sure. Yeah. Because do more or less, right? Is Continue to uh, cut cut funding. Yeah. So in regards to the organization today, right? So do you have a kind of back your head and obviously if you're helping people 600 people is what you're saying today is um uh, individuals that have are receiving assistance through Mm -hmm. through ohi what do you think the cumulative number would be over 40 years for for ohi uh uh,
2: like non-duplicative count different human beings yeah i'd say probably i'd say between three and four thousand
1: yeah so just think about Especially Maine's a small place anyway, right? Is three and four thousand people receiving help to live independently and, and uh, again, reacclimate in lots of different ways. And why I'm, why I'm bringing that up as a, as a number is you start thinking about, purpose and we're talking about the, their own, their own purpose, right. Is that, Hey, that they're, they're achieving and this, and I love what you, what you said and what you, you see at OHI a lot is, is that statement, everything is possible. And I, so I, I worked at OHI in college as well um, in the training departments, right. I, I saw that every day, right. reporting to, to work and, and kind of seeing that and everybody living that. And, and it, it always impressed on me that, look, it doesn't matter what to, um, what maybe from the outside you see but it, it's helping people realize their fullest potential and that that's a really a what a what a kind of a blessed mission to have right is to say hey i'm 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 looking at every individual person and trying to help them achieve their possible best and you know to parallel it to our podcast here our little project which is you know, I, I think we all kind of get to a point in our life and it could be, we start out in that point or we could, we could be in that point in retirement is this, we all kind of start losing our way a little bit of who are we and what are we about and what is our purpose and all that, which is why I wanted to kind of go to this point, right? Is this to start talking about this in terms of your career at OHI, it's been 40 years, right? And you've had a wealth of experiences that you just described before that. And, 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 at, at people in their life, they start kind of giving this gravity of, well, hey, if, at fifty five, you start thinking about retirement, right? Or isn't that what everybody starts saying is like at fifty five, you gotta start thinking about it at 60 and and you got just gotta get done, right? You just gotta get done your professional career and 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 that's something that we all just do. Which is by the way, as you know, you've seen a lot of generations with kind of your your great grandparents all the way through of going, well, retirement's very new, by the way, right? This is not a, you know, this concept of 30 years of living after you get done, your professional career is, is very new. But how do you, when people are saying that to you in your role today, where, geez, you have this wealth of experience, you've helped grow an organization for 40 years, and I'm sure people maybe directly say it or indirectly say it to you of, well, when do you think about getting done? How do you react to that? Because I know what we started with this is I'm not going to retire because of, again, what you described of you get a lot of self-worth out of this.
2: I was thinking about this question. And interestingly, I have surrounded myself. I think that this, that, that this is part of the key uh, to life, a key to the aging process. There are different types of aging. There's the aging of the body. There's mm-hmm. an aging of the mind. There's the aging of the spirit. And I have surrounded myself with young people. And so I'm always, I'm a relationship builder. So I don't know that there's ever been a time when someone has said to me, when are you going to retire? When there isn't someone present at that moment who says, she's not retiring. (laughs) We need her. She's not retiring. Right. And, um, you know, I've been very, very involved in my national national association. I've been the president of our national board twice. I've been, I had a 21-year stretch on the board of directors of our national association. Everything from the director of policy, vice president of policy, to the president, to everything else. And I am surrounded now at the National Association and at a state association and right at OHI with these young people who, they don't ask me if I'm going to retire. Mm -hmm. It's people my age who are tired and who don't have as exciting a job as I have.
1: And you see it, don't you? Right? You can see it in their eyes and you can see it in their energy levels.
2: I have seen it in my sister's eyes.
1: Yeah. And you can kind of get this feeling of yeah I'm just I'm spent right? I've given all I can give and you know am I moving to the next thing and, and I, I don't know I, I see it with when you have uh, I want to be careful in how I say this, but there's there's people that do a job for their career, right and that they they do it for lots of reasons, whether they're providing for their family or you know they're doing it to it's an exchange of their time for money, right and they're they're receiving money to then do things that they like to do. Right. That they're they're kind of using that as a way to find and explore other passions. Cause that's the best thing they can find that can compensate them the best for that for their time. But the other part of, you know, which you I think we all hope we all get into is this idea of this career is my passion. Right? This is what I'm placed on this earth to be. And if it's I'm paid one dollar or a million dollars or negative ten thousand dollars, I would probably pay to to be this. Right. And cause it, this defines who I am yeah. and this is what gives me the most purpose. And of course we're dealing with a retiree mm-hmm. population a lot, right. Is, yeah. is, you look at this and, and you're especially seeing it, that pre-retirement and we're having so many people right now that are 58 years old and 60 and they're just done. Yeah. Right. They, you can see it. They're done. They're, they're just, I'm holding on for a reason of, um, to 65. I'm holding on until 62 uh, because I'm concerned about Medicare. I'm concerned about social security. And I'll tell a quick little story uh, trying to keep it as kind of confidential as possible here. But one lady that came in and we talked to, she was telling the story about, um, and I asked her a question, well, how much of your work do you like right now? And she answered with 0%. Oh,
2: Oh, 0%. She
1: said, okay, when you come home at the end of the day, what do you like? Um, Are you happy? Are you angry? Uh, she goes, Ben, honestly, I'm, I'm upset. I'm stressed right out. I don't like what I just did for the day. And I asked her the question. I said, okay, what is your relationship with your granddaughter right now? When she sees you at 501 and you've come home, what is your relationship? She goes, well, you know, she's of a certain age. Little girls can be annoying sometimes. They're asking lots of questions there. <laughs> she goes, and I probably snap at her. I said, okay, well, what type of relationship are you having with your family your granddaughter because if she's say she's eight years old and you're if you're trying to get to medicare or social security say it's a few years out how many years are you going to be the worst possible version of yourself right in order to get to some arbitrary benchmark because that's not providing you passion in your life so those sorts of moments are what really drive me to go you know every second we should always be asking ourselves the question is this the best version of me and what what am i here to do and and that's where I, I like this. What we're going with this is this conversation about my purpose, right? As, and and sometimes it's, you know, my purpose has evolved from something to something else. And that's great, too. But when you start getting people that they're just done with work and they're just done, they, they just and I'm talking about really human stuff, right? Is it's like they're just they've tapped out. And and so what, what I hear you say is, hey, every day I get up. I'm excited to be at work, right? Is I'm excited to be with the people I'm with. I love what I do. I love the impact I'm making. I love the difference. I love um surrounding myself with this and I'm I'm powered by it and not spent by it. And I think that's the that's the time when I, you know we've kind of seen from people that are retiring from something is this idea of when they're they're seeing that that quotient reverse. They're seeing that they they don't exit the day and go. I'm really proud of myself. I'm really proud of all the energy I gave. I'm actually happier because of what I did today. And if it's the opposite, I think that's when you know is is kind of what we've kind of seen and experienced. So I just wanted to uh, you know whether it be flipping that back to you as as a as a thought, but you know from our end is there's just so many people unhappy in their jobs, and it's so saddening to me. Of well, you know, life is so short. That we gotta, we gotta maximize our time and we gotta find that thing. Cause if it's, you know, if it's just, you're just trying to get money in order to do something else. Well, you know, I don't want that person to have a negative relationship with their granddaughter for $30,000, right? What is that worth? Yeah. You know, way, worth way more than that. Who would ever have that trade off if you actually put it in those terms? So, you know, I, I wanted to just kind of flip. It's not really. A, question. It's a statement back to you, but I wanted to kind of uh, kind of have that conversation with you.
2: Well, I really am blessed in the job I have because the things that I love to do are, are part of my job. Mm. Uh, so for example, my granddaughter, speaking about granddaughters, mm-hmm. is in Washington. Mm-hmm. She works for Congress.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, because of the travel that i do in my job i see elizabeth far more than i would if mm-hmm. i if i wasn't traveling right. i just uh, spent a week in moldova mm-hmm. studying visiting with people with disabilities in in, in little tiny poverty stricken villages. But what did I do when I left Moldova? I flew into Washington, D.C. for a policy summit and had dinner two different nights and spent an afternoon with Elizabeth. Right. So in the work that I do, relationships are very important to me. Family is very important to me. And I love travel. Yep. And I get to do all of that. And I think it's a difference when you're speaking to a retiree whether that retiree is the boss or is not the boss. I've built a team at OHI. And so we have a great succession plan. If I were to drop off the face of the earth today, we know with board approval yep. who's going to be the next CEO. We have a lineup of people who could be the CEO. Yep. No, they're not me. No, Nobody is anybody but themselves. Yep. So I go home happy every night. I go home exhausted because I'm working as many hours a day on average right now as I did when I was started this job. Mm-hmm. I've always mm-hmm. worked hard. I love to work hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got a good situation at home. I've got, well, I've got my sister mm-hmm. and brother-in-law right around the corner for me down on Cape Jellison. And now I've got my daughter, Misty, who is a harder worker than me, mm-hmm. uh, and her husband, Dan, around the other corner. And we talk every day. And then I've got Holly and Matt down in Rhode Island, the parents of Elizabeth. And Holly and I talk every day on the way to work. Yep. So I've got family. I've got my, my brother Bobby in Prospect. I see him every Sunday. And my brother Terry at Litchfield I don't see quite as often. But mm-hmm. I've got my family all mm-hmm. around. And my grandson Noah uh, is a junior at NYU. I don't care what kind of a job I would have. I wouldn't be... I could be retired right now, but he doesn't want me at NYU.
1: Right. He's got too many <laughs> right.
2: fish he's frying there at NYU. Right. So, so, you know, this is, I love what I do. And, and, you know, to tell you the truth, when I, if, if I ever have to fill out an application of any kind and ask for income, I don't know. I have to get on the internet and I'll bang our savings and look up what I'm making because right. I don't, you know, it's right. not, it's not important to me. And I go home every night and I go home to two very stable, Creatures. Mm-hmm. One is my partner, Damien, who mm-hmm. doesn't make any demands on me. He's not the least bit threatened by a strong woman,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and he is incredibly bright. And uh, he's a veteran,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and my 185-pound Saint Bernard. Yes, Bruno, Nothing my dog. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think what what I want to just kind of commend you for, right, is. Being thoughtful to almost the audit of your time, right, is is that there, it's easy to just kind of get in a habitual pattern, right, of such over 40 years of, hey, I, I kind of get into a pattern of what my role is and it can feel not new. It can feel um, routine and boring after a while. Then you lose your passion for it because maybe you're not reinventing yourself from years ago and probably when I was in college, uh, I had done an interview with you and we, I think it was like an MBA program class that we, we had and I had to uh, talk to our class about it. But the idea of futurism is that you've always been looking ahead and, and that's something where kind of looking ahead that I know this is not something you've probably not thought about is, you know, you've created all of this because if something is off in my life, I have a system in place to, to help make all this work, right? Cause you you work too hard for, 40 years of OHI to make that really work and to have all these people that are dependent on this organization if something happened to you for that just to go away right let's talk about you know our word in the financial industry is this fiduciary right is this putting interests of someone else above your own which is what you're doing in this organization right so you're putting all these systems in place which is extremely important as an executive as a but as a responsible person. Is making sure that those things are there. Uh, but from the happiness perspective for retirement, again, which is why I, I, what I heard you say is that, you know, you've created systems in place and these relationships that are happening, that they happen every day and you've maintained them and you continue, which all these family and friends you have to work at, right? they are two way streets, but you always have to really work hard to maintain relationships over your life.
2: Oh, I don't know about that. Okay. I, I don't know that you have to work hard. If you are a natural relationship builder, it's not work. It's just, a, true. it's a part of who you are. And, and uh, people know it. Yeah. Uh, you know, people know it. And, uh, so I have, you know, friends in, you know, all over the country. I, I like to say that if I got stranded, if an airplane had to stop someplace, I would know somebody I could call to come get me. That's in, beautiful. Yeah. In almost every state. Including Hawaii and Alaska. And, and, in some foreign countries too, but, and I've, I've, of course I've planned my funeral.
1: Yeah. Right. Well,
2: I mean, not the details, except that it's going to be a huge party. (laughs) And all these people (laughs) I have wanted forever to get to meet one another because there's these up in Alaska and there's Joni in Sedona and, you know, and and Amy in Ohio. They'll all come and they'll get to meet one another.
1: I want to, I want to ask you, just a future question. So again, the, the systems and elements for you, what are there things about as you, in terms of the aging process, what are you scared of? And and this is something where we had Dr. Cliff Singer on a few episodes ago. And one of the things that he, we talked about was mortality isn't what people really are are fearful of as they're aging. As you have a peak of a, a awareness of your own mortality that you kind of have this fear that really settles by the 50s and the 60s and what he says is a lot of the issues around dependency is that people don't want to be a burden right they don't they want to be independent they want to do all the things they always wanted to do and they want to continue to do that as long as possible so a lot of the resistance over aging what he was describing was dependency would you share that in terms of what what do you like in terms of aging for you what are you what what kind of is fearful for you?
2: I think that uh, having to have my two working daughters quit work, I I, I've, I have argued with them about this, uh, and you will not need to support me, you will not need to take care of me. I would be just fine in a nursing home, and if I've got a, a, a tongue in my head and a... <laughs> half of a brain I, i'll run the nursing home and won't let them treat me sure, badly sure. but uh, i would say that 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 is my major concern uh, but the girls have they both are in uh the healthcare field so they are a bit more astute about what it means to take care of somebody sure than another kid who says oh i'm going to take care of you but then when the time comes they have no clue about right. it right uh, so I am concerned about that, although they have a plan that one of these trips I'm going to crash and burn doing some exciting thing. And then they, you know, they won't need to take care of me. Uh, you know, my health is, is good. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to brag about it, but I, I had a tick on my back last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, my staff got all upset when I discovered the tick and you've got to get over there to Penobscot health care and so forth. And so when I went over there, this young guy is taking the, doing the intake. Well, he asked me what medications I was taking. And I, I, I said, well, I'm not. Well, who is your doctor? I said, I don't have one. <laughs> I mean, you know, cause the doctors turn over fast. Sure, you know. yes, yes, So, have, uh, yes. so I, I mean, over there at Huston Internal Medicine, I've had four doctors night, so I haven't gone back after three years. I'm tired of them turning over. Yep. But I do not take calcium or vitamin something or other or nothing. I don't take anything. And this young, Guy said, well, let's ask me my birth date again. <laughs> <laughs> so the same thing happened when the tick doctor came in.
3: Yeah.
2: He said, they haven't got any medications down for you. Well, Which I surely said,
1: must be wrong. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Well, but your vital signs. Too good. Your, your pulse is 52. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> and, and your, and your, your uh, my blood pressure was something like 112 over 63 or something. I don't know what it was. Something, it was a low thing. Anyway, and so... My health is good. And that's a part of why I can be as positive and optimistic about my future. Mm -hmm. This is not work for me. It is not work.
1: And I want to wrap up with one final question for you. And so usually what we're asking, it's our last question on this podcast, is asking people about the retirement success, which I, I think we've covered in spades and probably isn't the best question to ask. So I want to ask a different side of that question. What advice would you give somebody that is looking to work as long as possible in the career that they love? What, would a, what do you think that they should be thinking about or doing to enable them to do that?
2: They've got to be working in a job that they love and that they can't do without. Uh, they, they have got to have a work-home uh, life balance. Mm-hmm. They, they have got to uh, do the things that are going to keep them mentally and physically healthy. Those things are pieces of advice. I also would say you, you, you've you got to do succession planning, whether it's leaving things in good shape at home so that if you drop today, your passwords are all lined yep. up, even though you have to change them every five minutes. Right. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, that, I mean, I leave on the refrigerator who to call for Damien, and you know, all if the, you know, the oil, the gas, the yep. this, the that, the paper people, uh, you know, so you've got to have things organized because it weighs on you. There were a few, oh, I would say about eight years, seven years ago, maybe I felt there were things that needed Tending to that mm-hmm. I'd put off for too many years, and so I t- took a i think it was a month or two sabbatical interesting and uh put put some things in order mm-hmm. so it, it, it is, it, you have to have peace of mind to continue to work if you don't have peace of mind it's
1: uh which kind of goes to organization right is it's it's like well yes. being organized leads to more confidence more confidence allows you to then You know, have that peace of mind to to do what you want to do too, right? right? Whether it's working or or whatever. So
2: you also, uh, you 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 can't go to bed at night. Sorry that you didn't say something to somebody that you should have said. You've got to you have got to have those conversations. Sometimes they're courageous conversations. But don't let the sun set on a bad relationship.
1: Yep, I agree with that. That's a good thought to end on. So Bonnie, I wanna wanna thank you for being on our show today. I appreciate, so appreciate you sharing your story. You know, I, I think for for this, for, for our show, we want to provide inspiration. So I, I know in lots of different ways, you've inspired me personally. So I appreciate you, you coming on and doing this for us. So thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you for inviting me. Yeah,
1: our pleasure. Thank you so appreciate everybody tuning in today so with uh happy to have bonnie coming in and again, i've referred to her as aunt bonnie right so <laughs> i have a family relationship with with uh bonnie there and why was she the person again we were at a at a birthday party together And, you know, you ask the natural, hey, when are you going to retire? And she says, I'm not going to retire. Yeah. Well, geez, that would be a phenomenal podcast because we (laughs) hear that from clients all the time. Yep. It's like, well, I love what I do and I'm not going to retire. Like, well, geez, there's got to be some sort of
3: time, <laughs> right? No, but really, when but are you really, going to retire? Yeah. <laughs> when is that going to happen? So there's
1: this kind of natural gravity that pushes people to eventually get done their position or their yeah. job or their vocation or that sort of thing. And again, the, the purpose of our podcast is about purpose. Well, you know, you we, we go through that entire conversation with Bonnie mm-hmm. and you go, I completely 1000%. Understand her purpose, right? yeah, is yeah, being part of OHI and helping people with mental health and uh, mental disabilities, and growing that that organization to to help the that population and really. And she, you can just tell she bleeds it. She mm-hmm. cares with all of her essence of her being, which is. What I've really loved about her my entire life, yeah is uh, is kind of seeing her having that purpose. there's no wavering. there's no um other things she'd a- rather be doing in her life. yeah, there's no kind of, of that's it yeah so for me that was that was kind of why I wanted her on the show today and, and I really appreciated her uh, telling that story like only she could mm. um and and hopefully you all uh, hearing that today got something from that too.
3: Yeah, it uh, you know, it it was certainly interesting for me to sit here, um, because you know I've heard of Bonnie a lot from you, Ben, yeah. but no, she did a great job, and you know, it, just to stress on the 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 statement, I'm not going to retire. You know, we we joke about it, but there really are a lot of people we hear that from, and I think you know one one reason that Bonnie is is successful and and can say that is. You know, there there is a plan. Bonnie knows that inevitably someday she's not gonna be working. That's right. Whether that's her choice or not. Um, you know, she's shared her thoughts on that. Um but it's so important to to have that that body at you know, at OHI she talked about the governing body above her that there is a plan in place for the day that she doesn't come to work. Yep. And, you know, we've talked about it a little bit with Susan Warepage yep. and, you know, and more recently with David Jean, just about this, you know, businesses having that succession plan, you know, and it differs a little bit because, you know, some of the the people we hear it from may be the only person at the top of the organization. But I guess I would say it's it's even more critical for them. It is more critical for them yeah. to, to kind of have that plan. And,
1: and with with Bonnie, of course, what's Interesting about you know she's a, a part of a nonprofit, right? Right. So they have a board of directors, and they have people that are independently thinking about the organization in these sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural forcing uh, the leaders yeah. to think about that. Right. right? Is that mm-hmm. hey, you got what are you going to do when you're not here anymore? Right. Right. You there, this is going to be a day, and we need to have a plan in place. So it, which in a way, it makes her job so much easier. She's not looking over her shoulder going, is this the day that they're going to kick me out today? Right. That there's an understanding of what that looks like and when that's going to be and what sort of situation would have to arise for her to step down or step into different capacity. So I like that, that that was something, was an outcome from this conversation of when I say I'm not going to retire, it means that I'm, you know, I, I have something in place that allows me to stay in this job as long as possible. Right. And you hear this from the retiree perspective, which we've talked to Diane Walsh about is, you know, my purpose is I want to stay in my home as long as possible. Well, you have to do things in your home to allow you to stay there. Right. It's the same thing with a job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, this isn't a job. This is her purpose and her passion in her, and her yeah. career yeah so uh, yeah that was I, so i think a good takeaway for the for those that are listening today is hey if i'm an owner and i might be the only person that is i'm a one-person owner in a company and that's all we do and you know i'm the but having that so if something happens to me today that there's a kind of this living will like what rachel and joy talked about mm. from rodman winchell yeah this kind of Things happen. Here's where the keys are. Here's how the payroll gets done. Here's all my responsibilities, and it'll be taken care of that way. So pretty cool. Uh, For those listening, again, if you want more resources and to figure or hear a little bit more about uh, Bonnie's story and OHI, we will have links to OHI and Bonnie uh, through our blog. So you can go to blog.guidance.llc.com backslash number 11 11.
3: this is 11 we've made it past the 10 mark that's right we got we got to double digits and kept going yeah so
1: you can go there uh and find more information uh we appreciate you tuning in hopefully got something out of today and looking forward to next time
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session